Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I'm a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. My goal is to tell the real stories of law enforcement, the ones that don't make the news. Today, I'm joined by Catherine Boyle. Many of you may know her as the lieutenant's daughter on Instagram. Catherine is, in fact, the daughter of a retired lieutenant, Michael Boyle, of the Philadelphia Police Department. Lieutenant Boyle was on the department for 29 years and served most of his time in the Special Victims Unit, which Catherine and I will talk about. We'll also discuss just how many family members Catherine has who serve or have served in law enforcement. Our goal for this episode is to share the insights Catherine has had as the daughter of a law enforcement officer and her mission to create a program for families of law enforcement to help them get the support they need. It launches this month and it's called Beyond the Uniform. We will get into all the details and all you need to know in case you're interested. Catherine, thanks for joining me. Thank you, I'm excited to be here. I wanna say, you know, thanks for reaching out to me on Instagram. I do want my listeners to know you can contact me about being on the show or if you have a question or a recommendation, I welcome that. I am also pleased to talk to a fellow, fellow civilian and you would be the first person, the first family member of a law enforcement officer that I've talked to on this podcast. And it's important to me because in the 13 years I've been working with law enforcement, I have learned law enforcement is a family job. Absolutely. It affects the family. They need your support, but you also pay the price. You sacrifice a lot. You commit a lot. So thank you for being a law enforcement daughter, cousin, niece. So let's, um, do you want to start with your dad and like when it dawned on you that he was a police officer? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So as you noted, my dad was a police officer my whole life and I never really registered it. And I know that sounds silly maybe to an outsider, but it was so normal. My upbringing was so normal. And I, we had such a family unit that it never crossed my mind that he had any sort of traumatic or different or unique job or even a unique schedule. It was just sometimes dad worked night work. Sometimes dad wasn't home for dinner, whatever it was. Again, we were all really close. We had a really happy childhood, really engaged childhood. And then when I got older and in retrospect, it was kind of like, oh, he had a unique job and he did see some really crazy or traumatic things. One like example that I sometimes give to kind of put this into context is every day when my mom would give him his lunch and kiss him goodbye, she would say, be careful. And as a child, I literally thought that that was the same thing as goodbye, see you later, or like whatever your salutation is. And it wasn't until I got older in my life that I realized, oh no, he literally had to be careful because he was doing a dangerous job. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how I put it into context for people. And when you say you got older, how much older? Like, are we talking 12? Are we talking 22? His job, probably around 12. Yeah. Like grade school, middle school. The fact that my upbringing was unique in the police world wasn't until I was much older, probably in my late 20s. And when you say unique, what do you mean? So again, we were very much a unit. My parents were together. I always said like I had 
the most ideal upbringing. And if I ever were to bring children into the world, I would want to emulate the upbringing that I had. And that's just not necessarily always the case for any family really in modern day, but especially in first responder families, just because it's such a challenging job, it's such a, it can take such a toll on not only the first responder, but on the whole family because the job is really demanding on both both units. You know, it's not uncommon for excessive overtime to take a toll, the officer or the first responder to be out of the house a lot because of work, because of court, whatever it is. Again, the trauma that they face on a regular basis, the coping mechanisms that sometimes they may or may not turn to can all really take a toll on any family. That just didn't impact us in any way. And my parents did a really great job of navigating the lifestyle and leaning on one another and being able to depend on one another and i would i would think communicating with one another to ensure that everything was as seamless as possible for us so that we wouldn't have to go through anything secondhand trauma or anything like that well and before i continue that thought i do want to add that you know of that which you speak because not only is your dad in law enforcement, but tell our audience, my audience, the extent of law enforcement in your family. Yeah. So my dad is one of many. Pretty much all of my uncles and most of my male cousins are also police officers. My dad and both his brothers became police officers. Then a lot of their sons became police officers. My Dad has a nephew, my cousin, who was killed in the line of duty when I was a baby. And then coincidentally, my mom and both of her sisters married police officers and some of their sons also became police officers. So I grew up around quite a few police officers of various um, ranks. (laughs) So you have uncles by marriage who are, wait, so not blood uncles. These these are by marriage. I have both. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So my dad and both of his brothers and then okay. Okay. my uncles by marriage on my mom's side. That's a lot of law enforcement. A lot of law enforcement. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what drew your dad to it? I do actually. And I'm glad you asked because I think this is important to touch on. It's in my opinion and from my perspective, a really big reason why I think we did have such a normal upbringing and he did have the ability to kind of compartmentalize. First and foremost, he went to college and he got a degree in psychology and mental health, and that was the route he was going to go. This was in the 70s, and that field was kind of dissolving at the time. That's when mental institutions, I think they were called, were were being dissolved. So he went out and he did get a job in that field, but it was a struggling field. He was struggling to make things work. And so he was kind of like, I need a good job. I need some good benefits. I need to be able to rely on my income. I'm going to become a cop like my older brother. So that's why he did it. And he didn't become a cop until he was 30. And he had plenty of life experience under his belt. And again, he did it quite literally as a means to an end. He needed a good income, something he could rely on, something he could build a family or raise a family on. I think that that is part of why, again, he he was able to compartmentalize. He didn't get wrapped up in any of the 
you know, boys club, so to speak, or after hours, things like that, because he just, he needed a, a good income and good benefits. Do you feel he found the work rewarding? He definitely did. Absolutely. He impacted many, many lives, both of the the people whose homes that he went to because he was a police officer, but also the people on his team. He, um, uh, he, he was, he was such a good cop. You know, as a lieutenant, he actually would hold little seminars, PowerPoint presentations, things like that for the younger police officers. Some of them were still in college. So he would proofread their, their work papers, help them learn how to write a good paper, therefore a good report. He was just such a good leader. He would encourage opening up, talking about things, all of the, all of it. And he even had someone who worked for him. She got married after he had retired and she asked him to walk her down the aisle at her wedding. Uh So he definitely had quite a big impact on a lot of, a lot of people. That's great. I want to get back to um, his work, but I I would feel remiss in not commenting on and reacting to the line of duty death your family experienced. So let's touch on that. So this was your cousin? He was my dad's nephew. So my dad's older brother's son. And so, and and how old? You said he was only nine months on the job, I think, when I did the pre Yes, 21 and he had nine months on the job it was a month before his 22nd birthday oh my god and can you talk about his incident yeah definitely um i was a baby when it happened i was about two years old when it happened but you know i've heard stories everyone still talks about him he was again nine months on the job at the time philadelphia was going through budget cuts and he did not have a partner And um, he was patrolling at night by himself. He pulled over a stolen vehicle and uh, the guy that was driving the vehicle was on parole and would have gone back to prison. So um, when he got pulled over, he got out of the car and um, uh, shot my cousin, I think it was like 11 times, uh, through the windshield. I'm sorry. I can see, and you didn't even know him, and it's just upsetting to you. Yeah. Yeah. And so your poor cousin, he didn't even get to get, he didn't even get out of the car? Mm -mm. This guy just, yeah. No, he, um, the guy actually jumped on the hood of his car and fired through the windshield, and he, he radioed for help, and in the trial, they had to listen to the radio. I've never listened to it, but I've read the transcripts and him begging for help. Um, but yeah, he he didn't even have a chance to to do anything. And then the the guy who shot him, his name's Edward. He ran, and there was a I think it was a two day manhunt for him. They caught him actually. They were chasing him in. In Philadelphia, we have row homes, a lot of row homes, and they were chasing him across the roofs of a bunch of row homes. And one of those homes was on fire, and he actually fell through the ceiling, and they, that's how they caught him. But he survived. He survived. And did they handcuff him with your cousin's handcuffs? I was actually thinking about that this morning. I don't know. Yeah. I have to ask. 
And I think it's important. What was your cousin's name? Daniel Boyle. So Officer Daniel Boyle, we thank you for your service. It's, uh, it's always hard. Yeah. We, um, I do want to note that my uncle did start a scholarship foundation in Danny's name. They do fundraisers every year, and they've raised over a million dollars to send underprivileged kids to Catholic schools all across Philadelphia. So. Wow. Well, we'll include that information uh, in the met, in the in, I would say the meeting notes <laughs> in the episode notes. So it's interesting to me. I mean, I've had a lot of loss in my life. It's interesting to me the level of emotion that you feel because you would have been so small. Mm -hmm. So where do you think that comes from? From what your dad went through, what your uncle went through, what your whole family lost? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question because, yeah, I don't have a recollection of him, which I think is maybe part of it. Um, But I think it's just the combined effects um, about like seven, eight years ago, Edward went through a retrial and he, mm. um, he's, he was on death row. He's no longer on, in, on death row. He's in general population now. And I remember that being really hard on the family because they had to go through the whole thing again. They had to listen to the tapes again. But I think beyond that, it's just, it's all of it. You know, Danny is one of so many and it's only becoming one more common and more normalized. And I think that that's just really hard as, you know, a civilian who cares a lot about these people and sees them in, in a certain light. It's just really hard to see it becoming more and more, I hate to say it, but normal that these people are being shot. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've covered these stories and I, I uh, work with tangentially, uh, podcast called failure to stop they just did an episode there it's airing well it would have aired by now they've done the number of these where it's it's well we don't need to digress but i think some of it is officers being afraid to react because of the political climate we're in yeah and uh, how many years ago so you were little so this was you're gonna have to tell me your age now but (laughs) (laughs) that's okay i'm 34 and it happened in 1991 91 wow okay and I want to add that you're wearing a necklace that has his badge and yeah. his badge. His badge number. Oh, that's very sweet. Um, I have to think that, you know, for his father and your father, I, you know, I'm not sure how you keep going, especially when you know he's lost his life doing exactly what you do for a living. Yeah, I, I can't imagine it. Um, and yeah, my, my uncle and my dad, they were both still very much on the job. Yeah, I I can't imagine how you just keep keep going, how you deal with that. Yeah. Well, we were let's talk about your dad some more. You said that he spent a lot of his time on Special Victims Unit and I think everyone who hears Special Victims Unit thinks of the TV show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, tell us what SVU really is. Yeah. And I remember I used to love that show and my dad would be like, that's nothing like the real thing. (laughs) But um, yeah, so he worked for Special Victims Unit for as far back as pretty much I can remember. Back when he first got on on Special Victims Unit, it was actually called Sex Crimes. And uh, they got a new 
leader. I don't know if it was a captain or what have you, but they got a new leader from New York City where it was called Special Victims Unit. And that person actually changed it from sex crimes to Special Victims Unit. And here, I actually don't know about anywhere else, but here it was split into two divisions, if you will. One was like sexual crimes and things of that nature. And the other one was um, children and at-risk people of, of any type. And my dad was the lieutenant of the children and at-risk persons category. Oh. Um, obviously, that you know there was crossover and he worked very closely with the other, other lieutenant who's one of his really good friends now, but that was the, the one that he really oversaw, the pillar. And so when you say at-risk, are these kids who have maybe are living in families where there's a CPS concern or how, how did they define at risk? Yes. So again, mostly it was children, a lot of at risk children. One case that is probably one of his biggest cases. And if anyone wants to Google it, it it's called the Delamar Vera case. This girl was, she perished in a fire and turns out she didn't. Someone had lit a fire in this woman's house with her newborn baby and stole the baby, moved away, raised it as her own. And eight years later, I think it was, the biological mom saw Del Delamar at a birthday party and was like, that's my baby. That's my child. Fast forward, turns out it was. And she had been raised by this other family in New Jersey my dad had to prove that and wow. actually rehome Delamar with her biological mom at eight years old. That's not easy for the child because right. she had been raised in, in a normal family. They, they raised her as their own. Her biological mom didn't speak English. Delamar only spoke English. And I remember that, that being one of the one of the biggest cases he worked on, but also one of the hardest cases because it was really hard for him to have to do that to the young child mm. because that's that's not a good position to be in. And she was objecting, things of that nature. But yeah, so so anything from something like that to child, uh, wow. CPS cases, abuse accusations, things like that. Well, that's a, you know, I've talked to a number of detectives in episode five, I talked with Detective Moses Castillo, retired from LAPD. He did sexual assault. I think his unit was called sexual assault, but it was of children. I think his youngest victim was an infant. And then an episode that will have aired right before you, uh, episode 45 with Nako Nolan. Again, another detective who who worked with these kinds of cases, uh, you know, children who had been assaulted by someone they knew or someone, an adult or by their parents. And so this sort of even says even more about how your dad managed his life at home, because if this is what he's seeing, I mean, all police officers, as you know, on patrol, whatever unit you're in, you see the worst of the worst and you see it just, I would say, potentially just about every day. Mm -hmm. And the job takes from them, you know, what they, what some officers have said to me is, you know, you go in as one person and you come out another. 
And so knowing that this is what he was dealing with yet was able to not, I mean, you were aware of this case somehow potentially later, right? Not as a kid, but for you not to feel the impact of what he was experiencing Mm -hmm. says a lot. And I know that's what you want to talk about. Yeah, definitely. So this case, I, for the most part, I didn't necessarily know the specifics, but for the most part, I knew about this case the whole way through. I was 12 when it happened. So it was definitely something that I was kind of privy to. And again, it was a big case. He was in the news. Mm. There was actually like an unofficial movie made about it. It's a Lifetime movie. (laughs) Um, Those count. I love love (laughs) Lifetime movies. Uh, he he went to Washington, D.C., and he actually received an award from George Bush, who was the president at the time. So this was a pretty high-profile case and, and traumatic in its own right, especially for him and the people involved. But I think as, like, an outsider, it wasn't as traumatic as, you know, for him to talk about or let us know about or what have you. Uh, but there were a lot of other cases that he did not talk about until we were older and a lot of those were more of the cps cases the child neglect cases poison cases you know they're oh you had asked about the at-risk people you know people with serious physical ailments whatever they are if they are bedridden he had quite a few of them you know bedridden and not taken care of things like that and i would never have known that he was dealing with anything like that until i got older in retrospect and he was kind of more willing to open up a little bit. There's still some that he won't talk to me about, which I respect and I understand. But I I do know that he, my brother is an emergency room nurse and they they do. He has talked to my brother about them, but he won't talk to me about them, which I, I kind of appreciate also. I think he just did a really good job of keeping us out of it and not letting it impact him once he got through the door he was and I don't I don't even know how he did it and I don't know that he knows how he did it necessarily but it was like once he's through that door and he's with his kids and his wife that's what matters and that's what he's focused on well it's I mean I know you want to talk about this and how people can do things the way he did I just having interviewed officers it's and you you tell me but when you see these things and you come home, you don't necessarily want to talk about it with your family because you don't want to impose this on them. But yeah. then at the same time, if you can't talk about it with the people you love, then what starts to happen? What my dad did, what I know he did is he would tell my mom what she could handle. Whatever they established she could handle, they would talk about it. And then outside of that, I mean... You know, my dad had his brothers who mm. were also police officers or retired at that time. So he he did have those people to go to. And and I mentioned earlier, the other lieutenant in special victims unit was a good friend of his. So he also had him to go to. And so I think it was kind of about finding balance and finding the right, I don't know, circumstances under which to talk about these things and to openly talk about them and talk about them with intent and purpose to decompress or, you know, make sure that they're not weighing on you. Talking to someone you really trust and with the intention of this is weighing on me and I need to get it off my chest, that's going to be really beneficial to your mental health and to how you 
actually cope. Did you ever see a time when you felt like the, it was getting to him or it was getting to your mom? I, I don't think so. During the Delamar case, I would say I think so. Not a lot, but I do remember him talking to my mom about how it was kind of weighing on him. You know, what I said earlier about having to rehome, if you will, this this young girl and how it was taking a toll on her. And I think that that was probably the only time that I saw it kind of weigh on him. Well, and so... Let's talk about you. I mean, it, it sounds like you had a, a really great childhood and upbringing. Did you feel the impact of this? I mean, I said at the top, you know, it's a family job. Families sometimes pay the price. They sacrifice a lot. You know, it could be that it's you can't be there for Christmas dinner, or it could be that I can't talk to my dad because he's traumatized. So... Yeah, I think I, I what I will say is stoicism was pretty big in and still kind of is pretty big in my family. And I don't I think that that is probably a result of the job. My dad was loving as could be, but he was also quite stoic. So I definitely think that that might be an element of the job, but he really did whatever he could to be very present and give us as normal of an upbringing as as possible. Taking time off was always top priority for, for him. Um, he would put in time off as early as possible. He made it a point not to take on overtime unless it was required for the case or required by the department for, you know, whatever parades or celebrations or what have you. He didn't take on additional overtime for additional money. He and my mom worked really hard to develop a budget that allowed us to live within our means so that he could be home. And he also, again, what I'll say is he took promotions with the intention of this is going to benefit my family. He could have become a captain and he chose not to because he didn't want to take away from us. So I think that that was something that, again, he worked with my mom and it has to be, you know, a, a, a joint decision, but he, he worked with my mom to figure out the best possible route. And my mom said, I am not going to tell you how to do your career. So that's kind of how he just said, this is what I'm going to do. I want to be home and this is the route I'm going to take. And she had his support secondhand. That's great. You reminded me of a story you told me in the pre-interview about his being there for dinner. Yeah. yeah. You want to tell me that story? Yeah. He was pretty much always home for dinner. Um, and this is something that we talk about because, you know, it, it's not always the case. You can't always be home for dinner, but he always made it a point to be home for dinner as much as possible. And I actually remember when he wasn't home for dinner. And that that seems like such a small thing and it's such an easy thing to overlook and not think about, you know, for, for anyone. But in retrospect, I remember when he wasn't home for dinner. And I would say to my mom, recently I've said to my mom, like, oh, dad was never home for dinner. And my mom was like, no, he wasn't home for dinner for a very short period of time because he was going through a promotion. But it's just interesting, as you mentioned, it's interesting that that stands out so 
prominently in my mind. And again, you don't think about it, but small, small things like that really do impact a child. Right. Right. So you do have a vision and a purpose that we are going to, we want to talk about. And I think if I'm, if I have this correctly, this sort of came to you in 2020 when we're dealing with the riots. Is that, Mm -hmm. and you were living in New York city at the time? Yes. And so just coincidentally, I, I think I told you this, but I've been working with law enforcement. I was doing primarily paid work, like training videos, uh, recruiting videos, all with a storytelling approach and all the work went away during COVID. And then, but I launched this podcast during the riots and the riots here were really bad. So as they were in, in many places. So it's interesting that both of us, I mean, it wasn't a career change. It wasn't a change for me, but it actually reignited my commitment to telling these stories. So go ahead, tell me about 2020 for you. So yes, this idea came to me in 2020. But prior to that, I, again, living in New York City, I always wanted to do something to support police officers. I would Google all the time, like, how can I support police officers? How can I support the NYPD? And I would just, I would get like, you know, fundraiser links or what have you. And I'm like, I want to be boots on the ground and helping these people and supporting them and showing up for them and letting them know that I'm here for them. I did end up taking the Citizens Police Academy at the NYPD, which was a really cool experience. But fast forward to 2020, the riots start happening and they had a really, a really big impact on me. I struggled with them a lot. Again, I was in New York City. I had several friends who were kind of participating in the riots and asking me questions. Yeah. How bad was it in New York? It was really bad. Yeah, it was really bad, really violent. And where, so throughout the city or did it tend to be in like down, you know, like Wall Street area or Times Square? Like my guess is probably in the Washington Square Park area or is it throughout Manhattan? Yes. From what I remember, they they were pretty much everywhere, or at least there was things happening everywhere. Most of the riots happened downtown. I actually ended up leaving New York during mm. that time because it just got to be too much. My my now husband and I ended up coming to the suburbs and, and staying with my parents because it was just, it was a lot. Wow. You had said that people started asking you questions. So I can imagine what yeah. they're asking you, but... You tell me. Yes. Yes. And and what I will say is they they were my friends and they were they tried to be respectful and they were just kind of asking me questions. How can you support the police? How yeah. can you do this? What if you were in this situation? Why did this happen? And 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 then it got to be a lot and people started sending me videos of the riots and it was just a lot. It was too much and I had to start putting up boundaries. And yeah, so at that time it, it was hard to see this and it was keeping me up at night, the riots, the, the impact on police officers, because this is, this is happening. And for me, I'm quite literally seeing these people as fathers, brothers, sisters, mothers, etc. I'm, I'm not seeing them as police officers. I'm not seeing them the way a lot of other people were seeing them. It's your family. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Quite, quite literally. I, and I, and I couldn't wrap my mind around how 
people couldn't understand that or see that. And so you left New York. Mm -hmm. And I went to stay with my parents. Again, my fiance, now husband, came with me. And like I noted, he it was keeping me up at night. And, and one night in the middle of the night, I just... It was like an actual light bulb moment. I've never had anything like this where I was like, I have to do something for these people. I wanted to find out how I could bring them together to talk or to, like I said earlier, decompress, figure this out, get through this because it it had to be just immeasurably difficult. And so I had this idea of starting a community. At the time, I was like, let's make it focused on mental health and and just kind of taking care of yourself and things like that. And then through the process of kind of starting to build that and talking to people in law enforcement, law enforcement spouses, et cetera, I kind of realized again, even more so that my upbringing was unique and that there needed to be more focus on families, whether it's supporting the families, helping the families learn how to support the officers, how can the officers be there for the families? Because again, it's it's a thin line to walk. It's tough. And that's when I really decided to sort of focus on that element because that's where my heart really is, is letting law enforcement officers and their spouses know that it is possible. I know that it's not easy, but it is possible to have a very connected and loving relationship with your family. And so that's kind of how I ended up here. And now I'm going to do events and eventually that that community will launch. Well, and to be clear, when you say your upbringing wasn't typical or wasn't the norm, you, you don't mean because your father was in law enforcement, you're saying your father was in law enforcement and you did not experience a lot of what other people yes. experienced. It was different for a law enforcement family. That's correct. Thank you for okay. clarifying that. Yeah. So let's continue talking about this idea you got in the middle of the night and the solution, the mission this sent you on, trying to help figure out how to help these officers. Yeah. So I personally have benefited so much from communities, specifically online communities, because it just has so much more reach. You know, you you aren't always comfortable with people in your immediate circle. You don't know who's going to find out about what. And so that was my initial concept was, can I build an online community for these people, these police officers, where they can kind of seek solace, get advice, whatever they need, focus on their mental health, basically, and taking care of themselves after these long, scary, tiresome, sometimes traumatic days, quote, I'm using quotes, at the office. And so I was kind of working on that, coming up with different ways to build that out. And and as I was doing that, I was finding myself networking with police officers other families of police officers, retired police officers, things of that nature. And the more I spoke to different people about what it was that I was creating, I find I found myself constantly coming back to this idea that my dad was a huge force in my childhood and he was a huge he made a huge impact on me as a child and now as an adult. And the more I would just keep coming back to that idea, the more I was kind of like, 
I actually think this is where I'm needed, if you will. Like, I think that this is the realm in which my purpose might lie because I remember one time in particular, my dad and I were actually on a podcast together. The podcast host asked us, you know, I forget the question exactly, but he asked us, how did your job negatively impact your kid's upbringing? And my dad and I didn't, neither one of us had an answer because it really didn't. And I think that was kind of when it clicked because you know, not only was that a moment where it was like, wow, it didn't. But afterwards, I spoke to the podcast host and he even said he was like, that was a curveball. I wasn't expecting that. And I didn't really know what to how to react because that's that's just, quite frankly, not often the answer. And so I think that that was kind of the catalyst for really going down this avenue of focusing on families and how can officers work with their spouses to show up for their kids and each other? And what small things can the officer do, you know, with the support of their spouse to show up in the family unit? You know, maybe big things aren't necessarily immediately an option, but there are small things that that he or she can do that will make an impact on the family. Are you creating an online community and a program? Yeah. So I wouldn't say a program. Since I'm not the first responder, I don't feel that I really have the platform to provide the insights that could be provided from other people who have experienced it and been through it and learned from it. So my goal is to kind of create this community where I can host events, whether it's in-person, maybe it's local, maybe it'll expand. But right now I'm hosting local in-person events. And if you attend one of those events, you will then find yourself in an online community. It's private. It's not on Facebook. It's a private community. You can only get in via invite from me, but that's how I'm kind of keeping it very protected, if you will. But again, if you attend one of my in-person events where there will be expert speakers who can provide guidance and tactical tips and even resources, then you can then find yourself in that community. And then the more it grows, I hope to provide virtual events too, because like I said, the idea is that I want to help people across across the country. And, you know, virtual events seem to be the best way to do that these days. So that's also down the pipeline. I think we talked in the pre-interview, you touched on something very important here, which is this has to be a safe place for law enforcement. And you're seeing to that. I mean, we've talked about, I actually, do you want to talk about what your husband does? Oh yeah, sure. So (laughs) he's former military. He was a infantry veteran uh, in the military, in the army. And now he is a substance abuse counselor for first responders and veterans. And so, you know, the, like you noted, I want to be very sensitive to some of the things that might be touched on, or these people might not touch on it in the community, but might be experiencing. And I want to be very sensitive to just the fact that privacy is very important in in this, especially as it's going to be online. Well, and the reason I bring it up is we talked about, for example, there's an organization out here called Code 4 Northwest, and they provide peer support, counseling, inpatient treatment, but they vet every single uh, 
therapist, every single facility that it has to be, it's for all first responders. These have to be professionals who understand yep. these particular needs of, in this case, law enforcement. And so I'm glad to hear you say that you have that level of protection. And to your point, like my husband, for instance, he is former military, so he does kind of have an insight into what right. these people are going through. His his supervisor is a former police officer, so mm. they are, yes, they are doing their due diligence for sure to make sure that this protected group of people are really you know, being understood to the maximum ability because it's, it, and then this is actually an important Thing to note, it's oftentimes when it comes to seeking professional help as a first responder or a veteran or something of that nature, dispatcher, it, you have to be very careful about who it is that you are, you know, hiring, if you will, or turning to for that help, because not everybody is necessarily equipped or prepared to deal with some of the traumas that that these men and women are faced with on a daily basis. When you have one of these events, how will you structure it? I guess there will be speakers, workshops. The one core idea behind the ones that are geared towards the couples, because that is what I'm doing, couples workshops, is that it's an afternoon to spend with your spouse uninterrupted, doing something for your relationship and for each other. Because another thing that many couples, but especially first re first responder couples don't experience is taking time out of their lives to spend it together, to spend an after afternoon together, pouring into one another, whatever that looks like. So I really want this to be an opportunity for the attendees to spend that time together meeting other people who understand what they're going through and want to prioritize the same things that they are prioritizing. Beyond that element, it's going to be, um, yeah, there will be expert speakers who will present on various topics. So one of the topics for this upcoming event is going to be, you know, self-care and taking care of yourself before it gets too late. He will be speaking from experience because, you know, he didn't put himself or his family first and he kind of learned the hard way that he needed to. So there will be speakers followed by some Q&A and then there's going to be a lunch, which will also have the opportunity for people to kind of meet one another and again, talk with the speakers, ask any questions they might want to ask. And then there will always be raffles and giveaways at the end. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, will you have your parents participate? Yes. So they're not going to speak, but they are going to be there to support. And if anyone wants to ask them any questions, because, you know, obviously they were integral in all of this, then they will be available for questions if anyone has any. Well, you know, this is great. I mean, a lot of people wake up in the middle of the night and have an idea <laughs> and then it just kind of stays there in bed. <laughs> yes. So you really have done some legwork and it sounds like you're taking this a step at a time. You're not going so big that it's overwhelming. Exactly. Okay. So what you had said is your husband will speak, uh, his boss, who you said is former law enforcement, and there will be a police wife. Yep. And how are you going to get the word out? 
Uh, so I have been doing, you know, social media is obviously an element, but not necessarily the best way to reach this community of people. So I'm actually working with our local FOP, uh, FOP5 here in Philadelphia. I'm working with the president. He is promoting it to all of his officers on all of his social media, as well as the FOP's official social media. And then uh, my husband and I have actually been going around to precincts in our area to hand out flyers, just kind of spread the word. So far, they have been very responsive. They're posting the flyers in their precincts. Apparently, precincts also also send out emails to their staff, and they're going to be including those this event in those emails. A lot of boots on the ground, actually, you know, really going kind of door to door and just talking to people. That's great. As you said, the people that attend will then be part of your online group. Mm-hmm. And then it will grow from there and potentially a virtual experience for people in other markets. Exactly. Yeah. And I really want to do the virtual, but as we kind of talked about, the privacy element is so big. I'm just, I'm not quite ready. I don't think, to, like you said, I'm taking right. it one step at a time. Right. I'm not quite ready to kind of tackle that piece of it since it's go once it gets out there, you know, to the, to the worldwide web. I think it might be a little bit more challenging to control who comes into the space. So I just want to take it one step at a time and start local and and really kind of work in this community as well as because this community, this my immediate surrounding Philadelphia area, we don't have as many resources and wellness resources and opportunities in in this part of the country, I guess. I'm learning that it's pretty big on the West Coast. And even obviously the NYPD has a lot of different communities and companies that they work with. But this Philadelphia area doesn't have quite as many. Um, and I really want to try to tap into that and get get these people right here, the help that they might need, the resources that they might need, and and really promote that concept of taking care of yourself and each other right right here in my backyard. Well, that's, I think that's a great idea. Thank you. <laughs> I, I mean, when you think about it, bigger isn't necessarily better. You know, a larger community mm-hmm. isn't necessarily, it's one at a time, person by person, couple right. by couple. I think to have that in-person experience for them will be amazing. And to have your heart driving all of this is amazing. Yes, thank you. Are you going to call it anything? Does it have a name? So I actually decided finally on the name <laughs> Beyond the Uniform. Okay, great. One thing that I remember from very young is that my dad never wanted to be in a uniform. He felt like it was a target, which mm. he wasn't wrong, but also he thought it was uncomfortable. So he just <laughs> never wanted to be in a uniform. So I have very, very few memories, if any, of him being in a uniform. And so, you know, I thought that that just kind of really represented the idea of him coming home and just getting on the floor and playing with us. Oh, that's great. He must be so yeah. proud. Yeah, I think so. You know, before I am going to let you go, but it occurred to me that you and your brother did not go into law enforcement. So you went into fashion, I think you said? Yes. And are you a designer? I work in marketing. Okay. And your brother is in the medical field? He's an emergency room nurse, yeah. So what happened, guys? (laughs) And my sister is a writer. Okay. Um, You dropped the ball. (laughs) Our dad always said no. 
Oh. <laughs> and um, we wanted to honor his wishes. He was fearful of us becoming, you know, wow. the dangers. That's interesting. And, you know, he also felt like they don't get the recognition or the respect that they deserve, police officers. And he didn't want us to have to, you know, have to deal with that. As we got older, we definitely agreed. My brother, I think, was the only one who really was interested potentially. But, you know, when he got older and he understood the risks and he understood, you know, the politics and the the way cops are treated, he was kind of like, yeah, I don't think this is for me, you know, either. Um, when I was little, I used to say I wanted to be a cop and everybody would laugh and say, you can't be a cop until they give you the opportunity to redesign the uniforms. <laughs> Which I guess tells you a lot about how I ended up being in fashion. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. And then, uh, you know, your poor brother goes into emergency room nursing and then, oh, COVID. Yes. Talk about uh, safe, not safe. Yeah, that was a lot. Yeah. He, the first time he got COVID, it was actually from uh, resuscitating someone who was COVID positive. Oh, without No one had a mask on, neither of them. He didn't and the patient didn't. Oh, my God. Well, thank you to your brother. Thank you to your father, your uncles, your cousins. <laughs> you mentioned Officer Daniel Boyle mm -hmm. has a scholarship. Is that something that's online that people can donate to? Or Yeah, definitely. There is a website, the Officer Daniel Boyle Scholarship Fund. Okay, great. Thank you for that. I will put that link in the episode notes for anyone who would like to donate. And to know more about Officer Daniel Boyle. Well, Catherine, you know, again, I'm thrilled to have met you. I am so excited about what you're doing and the vision you have, the experience you have, and that you're going to share that with law enforcement in your community. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor, and I'm really excited to see who I can reach and, and how I can help them. And what is going to be the best way for law enforcement families who are interested in what you're doing to reach you? I have a, a sign-up list for anyone who's interested in finding out when the next upcoming event is. Okay. So I can give you the link for anyone who wants to sign up if they're interested in attending a future event. Okay, great. I'll be sure to put the link for that sign-up list in the episode notes. And Catherine, maybe you can find a Philadelphia police officer to come on my podcast. Oh, I, I'll see what I can do for you. Maybe even a, a retired LT. <laughs> um, I think I could pull some strings. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>